The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A Practical Guide for Making Multidisciplinary Decisions About Neoadjuvant and or Adjuvant Immunotherapy in Resectable Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QRX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Uh, thank you all for joining us this morning uh, for this peer review session, a practical guide to making multidisciplinary decisions about neoadjuvant adjuvant, uh, immunotherapy and resectable lung cancer. Uh, today's faculty, I guess we could all introduce ourselves. I'm Jessica Donington. I am a professor of surgery at the University of Chicago, next to me. I'm uh, Patrick Ford. I'm a medical oncologist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. I am Jonathan Spicer, a thoracic surgeon up in Montreal, Canada at McGill. Yeah, so anyone who has been reading papers in the New England Journal of Medicine is hopefully very familiar with both of these names. Yeah. Our goals today are to enhance your understanding of all the evidence supporting the use of immunotherapy in the resectable lung cancer patients. We want to augment your skills in properly identifying candidates for neoadjuvant, adjuvant, and periadjuvant immunotherapy and improve best practice for multidisciplinary collaboration, as this is an opportunity to really integrate these therapies into an individualized treatment plan for patients with, unresect with resectable lung cancer. I hope I said that right, did uh, I? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I feel like I got an unresectable in there. This is the resectable session. Uh, and so we're gonna start today by reviewing some of the evidence and modern practice principles for the use of immunotherapy in the early uh, stage resectable lung cancer patients. These uh, new evidence really falls into three sections and we'll take them individually. One is the neoadjuvant use, the adjuvant use, and then the periadjuvant use. Uh, and I think Dr. Uh, Ford's gonna kick yep. us off. Hi everyone, um, so it's good to be here, bright and early for a medical oncologist. So to recap on Checkmate H16, so now uh, these data, um, the pathologic complete response you'll see on the left of your screen were presented um, so almost three years ago now, so time is really flying. Um, and in that initial presentation, we saw that patients who got three cycles of, of chemotherapy versus chemo plus nivolumab, the rates of pathologic complete response, and this was in the full intention to treat population, and including uh, both the lung and the lymph nodes, went from just 2.2% with chemotherapy alone to 24% with chemotherapy plus nivolumab. On the right of your screen, you'll see the kind of pivotal results, and these were the event-free survival. And this essentially is a metric accounting for patients who don't get to surgery, patients who have relapsed of their cancer or death. And this was significantly prolonged with the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy. And we now have long-term follow-up on this um, at three years, and it's still significantly improved with the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy. Here is the three-year update, which was presented earlier this year, and this showed a hazard ratio of 0.68, favoring nivolumab plus chemotherapy, and a difference at three years of about 14%. So those patients who got those three, three doses of nivolumab at the very start of their care had a 14% increased chance of being event-free at three years. And here is the overall survival. Now, this was a relatively um, smaller study than some of the other trials you'll see today. But there is a trend here towards the significant improvement in overall survival. At three years, there's about a 14% difference favoring a nivolumab plus chemotherapy. The p-value here looks uh, significant, uh, but it's not yet, um, largely because of the size of the trial and the number of events. But this is trending in, in the right direction. And now there's some other metrics I'd like to highlight as well. So you see here a three-year event-free survival. A metric we use in other settings, for, um, particularly in prostate cancer, where patients have a very good outcome long-term, is time to death or distant metastasis, because unfortunately most patients who, who develop distant metastasis will eventually die from their lung cancer. And here this is significantly improved with the addition of nivolumab to chemotherapy, going up to 77% in that arm. Event-free survival too is an unusual metric. You may not have heard about it before, but essentially is when you have a relapse of your cancer and that's treated, what is the likelihood of having another progression event again? And this again is improved if you got that nivolumab at the very start. There's also the question, what about the patients who don't get to surgery? So one of those questions at the very start was, um, 
as to which arm is more likely to not have surgery. And it appears even in those patients who, who don't have definitive surgery, they do slightly better or at the very least the same as those who don't. Um, so perhaps even there's some influence of therapy at that very early uh, time point. Um, so improving these metrics. What are the recurrence patterns of patients who do actually have a recurrence after treatment? And what is the impact of the immunotherapy uh, for these patients? And essentially what we're seeing here is a major impact on distant recurrence. So you'll see here on the left of your screen, local regional recurrence at three years, relatively similar in the two arms, very slightly lower in the nivolumab plus chemotherapy arm. But in the middle of the screen here, you'll see the big difference. Brain metastases are uh, reduced by over two-thirds. Distant metastases in general are reduced from 22% down to 10%. And you'll also see that the reduction in brain mets is seen irrespective of pdl one status, um, irrespective of clinical stage. So there is a really significant um, impact. And brain metastases, even with our improved systemic therapies, are still uh, lethal for many patients. So this regimen was approved now coming up on two years ago in March 2022. Um, it's now approved in over th uh, um, 25 countries worldwide, including most of Europe, Australia, and the US, Canada, and Asia. So who uh, do these therapies benefit, and can we identify these patients? And in short, I think it's difficult to identify the specific patients who will benefit from therapy because um, these are two patients based on our current imaging and staging modalities. They may look similar, but one of those patients may have micrometastasis, uh, particularly CNS metastasis, which I mentioned is a major problem. And we know that about 80% of the recurrences we experience after lung cancer surgery occur distantly, and they're due to occult micrometastasis. And what we're seeing is the major impact of immunotherapies on that um, problem. Again, these are the two patients, again, who have now developed one is three years out in the left and one is three years out in the right, and unfortunately, the one on the right has developed. These have become frank metastasis, which we now deal with as medical oncologists. So there are continued discussions as to whether we should use neoadjuvant, um, which is preoperative therapy, perioperative, which is preoperative and postoperative, or just adjuvant therapy. Should all patients go to surgery and then have uh, their adjuvant treatment. There is one other major benefit from neoadjuvant therapy, I think. So I mentioned earlier it's very difficult to identify those patients benefiting from treatment. Well, we can um, have one major outcome which can help us, and this is pathologic complete response. So we showed that about one in four patients have a PCR. Those patients who do have a PCR appear to do very well. So here on the right of your screen, you'll see the three-year outcomes. At three years, almost 100% of those patients will be alive if they had a pathologic complete response. And this is one potential benefit if we're seeing patients postoperatively. We can tell them their prognosis is most likely good, and that can help guide our, our decision-making in the adjuvant setting. Do you require further treatment or not? And how does this compare with some surgical trials? So for example, in the stage 1A um, setting here from the CALGB study, the three-year survival is about 80 to 85%. So this is um, actually inferior to the outcomes for these patients who have a PCR, even though uh, and the majority of those patients had stage 3A. So we can really select out those patients who have a good outcome and focus on the rest of the patients, perhaps to intensify their postoperative treatment. So again, back to these two patients. And the ideal situation is you can treat this patient who has micrometastasis and prevent those metastases from impacting their lifespan. Again, back to these recurrence patterns, uh, uh, patterns, and the really major impact is on this distant recurrence, particularly brain metastasis, and also potentially avoiding in the longer term the impact of radiation on the patient's brain. What can we conclude? So patients with a PCR are as close to cured as we know how to achieve. However, patients who have a very high amount of disease left after surgery, these patients have a very high risk of recurrence, close to 100% in Checkmate H16. And, th and these are the patients potentially when they come back to see their surgeon and potentially medical oncologist postoperatively, they're the patients we should be focusing on for intensified treatment, clinical trials, perhaps targeted therapy. And it's a coin toss for the rest. 
And I think how do we decide? Well, Dr. Donington and Dr. Spicer are going to talk about some of the, um, the perioperative and adjuvant trials. I think it'll take some time to work out exactly which is the best approach. So before we turn it over, there is a question that is fairly specific to the neoadjuvant space, so I'm going to pose that to you now. And that is, is the durability of immunotherapy response impacted by the number of cycles of neoadjuvant chemo-IO? Yeah, I think um, that's a question that's coming up because, so you'll see in the perioperative trials, for example, there's four cycles in most of them. Um, this trial was three cycles. Um, you will see, though, uh, there is some drop-off from that third to fourth, fourth cycle in the perioperative trials. So probably the real number of cycles people receive is anything from 3 to 3.5 in that neoadjuvant. Um, so my personal feeling is that if you get to three cycles, you're doing well. If you get to four, it could add some benefit, but it's probably marginal, and I would uh, not impair surgery to get there. Um, durability of response in advanced lung cancer, we can see responses after one cycle. Um, so I think the really important thing is getting one cycle or more, and ideally two or three, you know. What do you think? No, yeah, that seems to be the case, especially if you look at those early endpoints. So um, yeah. three for now at least seems to be the sweet spot, but there may be some long-term benefits to that fourth that we don't fully understand. There's one more really nice question here, so we're going to ask that, and maybe I'll direct this to you, Dr. Spicer, even though you haven't spoken yet, because I think the answers might be different for surgeons and medical oncologists, and that is, what do you tell your patients with lung cancer during their first visit about molecular uh, testing and profiling? Yeah, so I think it's actually a really critical step in terms of the decision-making, and depending on where you're working or where the patient is, that may take some time to get all that information. So I, I try to reassure the patient that that time is well spent, and although they may be um, feeling some urgency to get to treatment, that uh, the better thing is to have the right set of information to, to set up the correct plan. That, that will have the best long-term benefit. Yeah, yeah, I think John uh, put it very well, and we're also getting better slowly at this um, kind of identifying specifically those patients who have EGFR and ALK where we triage them to up front surgery, and then the rest of the patients consider for neoadjuvant. Great. Okay. I'm going to hold on some other questions. They're great ones, but we'll keep moving. I think they're more relevant to uh, more of the discussion. Um, actually, I, I'll get one more as long as we started molecular. Someone just posted one. Uh, are outcomes with immunotherapy, and this I'm probably going to direct towards you, are outcomes with immunotherapy similar irrespective of molecular testing? Um, no, I would say not. Um, the, uh, the benefit, so definitely in, in early stage disease to patients who have EGFR and ALK from immunotherapy is very unclear if there's any benefit. Um, so I think those patients in particular, we do need to identify them up front. It's still up for debate. Um, all the other molecular groups you talk, uh, think about, BRAF, MET, RET, um, we still don't know for those patients. Um, and I think um, the really ones we need to focus on are EGFR and ALK because we have good adjuvant therapies now for those patients. Um, EGFR is approved in the adjuvant setting, and we expect that in the near future the ALK therapy will be approved. Great. Thank you. Okay. Now we're going to move into the adjuvant immunotherapy space. So the first of the uh, adjuvant trials which was presented was this trial in POWER010. Uh, it was presented by Heather Wakeley in 2021, which seems like a lifetime ago, three years. <laughs> um, uh, and this uh, trial took completely resected stage uh, 1B through 3A patients, uh, and they were randomized after receiving uh, platinum-based chemotherapy to receive uh, a year of atezolizumab or not. Their results were done in a hierarchical fashion, um, and we've seen the results uh, I wouldn't say parsed out, but divided out uh, also by the pdl one expression and by stage. The curve all the way to your left uh, is the curve where the FDA approval was for, and those are for pdl one positive patients, so expression greater than 1% with stage 2 to 3A disease. And in those patients, we see a very clear and consistent separation of the disease-free survival curves as you get to including all patients, regardless of pdl one expression, uh, in the other two curves, uh, uh, the center one without the stage 1B patients, and the one all the way to the right with 1B, we still see the clear separation of the curve, 
but we also see a little bit less. And of course, those might be, especially the 1B population, a harder population to prove benefit as more patients are cured by surgery alone. And then we talked just previously about EGFR and ALK. When these trials started, EGFR and ALK patients were allowed in the trial. The numbers weren't large, but they were fairly significant. I think about 15% in this trial. So they did, at the uh, end analysis, look at the difference with or without the inclusion of the EGFR and ALK patients. Um, and we can see that when we exclude those patients, those curves uh, might get slightly better, not a dramatic difference. Um, so again, the medicine probably doesn't hurt them, but how much benefit they derive is unclear. It's certainly not the kind of benefit that we see with uh, trials like Adura and Alina. Um, and then this is the Keynote trial. So Keynote 091, or known as the PEARLS trial, not as well known here in the US. This trial was primarily run in Europe. In its design, it was quite similar to uh, the Empower O. Uh, 1.0 trial, but the outcomes were a bit different um, and at times a little bit confusing. So this was one of their primary outcomes, which was disease-free survival in the overall population. So inclusive of 1B through 3A with all patients regardless of their pdl one expression. And in my opinion, we're not allowed to do cross-trial comparisons, but this curve looks very, very similar to the overall curves from the EMPOWER trial. So this part everybody liked, everyone's happy, and then the next slide comes. <laughs> One of their primary endpoints for this trial was also that they would see a benefit in the PDL1 high expressors, the 50% or more, the population where we tend to see the most benefit. And they didn't see the benefit here. Uh, and it's not entirely clear, was this the trial design? Was this the control arm outperforming? There was also one key difference between the two trials. The uh, EMPOWER trial required adjuvant chemotherapy, and in this trial, it was elective. And not all the patients got their adjuvant platinum-based chemotherapy. Could that somehow have impacted this curve? I don't think we have full explanations. But regardless of the curbs, <laughs> uh, FDA approval was granted in both of these. The first one was for atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting for, again, stage 2 to 3A uh, tumors with PDL1 greater than 1%. And with it, they also improved the antibody used for the detection of PDL1 expression. And then in 2023, pembrolizumab also got approval, and actually for a broader group of patients. So it was approved for stage 2 to 1B through 3A, uh, regardless of PDL1 expression. Um, and it, I think those approvals are very interesting. Those are the approvals here in the United States. I do not believe those match what we see in Europe, yep. Canada, or many other um, places. Uh, most of Europe at TISO is 50% and above only, yeah. Yeah. And Pembro is not reimbursed in some places. Right. And I do think that that very much uh, reflects the enthusiasm I see amongst medical oncologists for the use of adjuvant. The, um, the real benefit is driven by the high expressors, and therefore that's where our, my medical oncologists have a lot of enthusiasm in the patients who are PD-L1 negative or those with low expression. It's much more of a conversation. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Donington. So uh, my job here is to talk to you about uh, not neoadjuvant or adjuvant, but the, the whole shebang, uh, neoadjuvant and adjuvant, or perioperative immunotherapy. Um, just to, to, to build on that concept, why would this be considered? You know, the, the, the adjuvant approach has the benefits of uh, having the full resection specimen, the, the practicality of the approach, of full pathological staging, Theoretically, the neoadjuvant uh, setting offers us immune activation that might induce uh, immunological memory against the tumor. And at least from the preclinical data, the concept was that uh, while that may occur, it may be necessary to sustain the, uh, the presence of those memory uh, T cells in the systemic circulation to, to affect uh, better um, uh, control of disease at uh, distant sites and, and perhaps locally as well. So there was preclinical data to support this approach and, and that's what launched uh, a lot, 
fairly broad series of, of trials uh, in this space. Uh, for today, we're going to focus on uh, these three studies in the red box, the AGN uh, trial, Keynote 671, and Checkmate 77T, all of which have uh, reported at least their uh, EFS outcomes. So AGN is the first one to report these uh, at uh, ACR. Dr. Hamack presented the, the findings um, and the first, at the first interim analysis for EFS, uh, perioperative drivalumab plus neoadjuvant chemo uh, provide a clear benefit in terms of event-free survival versus neoadjuvant chemo alone. Uh, here the hazard ratio was 0.68. Um, this was with a rather short median follow-up of only 11.7 months. Um, and EFS maturity of 31.9, but already uh, tr uh, trends heading absolutely in the right direction. Um, this, as I often say, is, seems to be driven primarily from very significant benefits in terms of pathological complete response. So we have 17.2% um, uh, pathological complete response in the Dervalimab arm versus 4.3%. Um, it's important to note that these different trials use different strategies or methodologies to assess the pathological response. Um, in the um, 77T and Checkmate 816 study, it was the IRPRC method, which is a little bit different because it considers the whole tumor bed um, as opposed to the ISLC consensus method, which really focused on the residual tumor area and counting how many residual cancer cells are within that area. So the denominator is usually a little bit different. For PCR, it should all be the same, um, but you know, we don't fully understand um, the, the differences between these two different uh, methodologies. Nonetheless, uh, clear difference here. In terms of um, the patient disposition, it was, it was really nicely detailed, uh, these data presented by Dr. Mitsudomi at the World Lung, um, and it's about 20% or so of patients who do not uh, go on to surgery. Most of them um, for diverse reasons, uh, but approximately, I think, 6.8% in the um, derva arm not going to surgery due to progression versus 7.8% uh, in the placebo arm. So in fact, uh, progression on therapy is not the uh, most common reason for non-receipt of surgery. Uh, there's a diverse set of reasons, including patient factors, uh, patients who are no longer uh, fit for surgery, a uh, couple events of death on systemic therapy, and a few events of uh, adverse events precluding surgery. Um, this is, uh, I, I like to present the study because I think it tells us perhaps where we're headed uh, in terms of how we assess the response to neoadjuvant therapy. Obviously, we do before and after, uh, and some people will do interval scans. There, uh, people might be doing um, re-invasive uh, re uh, staging after completion of neoadjuvant therapy. But Dr. Reck presented the data around ctDNA during the uh, neoadjuvant portion of the agent in trial. Um, and what was interesting about this, first of all, the large majority of the patients had uh, biomarker-valuable material. So it wasn't just a very small subset of patients in whom this could be assessed. It was actually a, a, a very large proportion of the patients. And what was striking is that the patients who were destined to uh, develop a pathological complete response, as you can see on the graph on the, on the left, the solid lines, uh, had much faster uh, ctDNA clearance even by cycle two and even more strikingly by cycle three uh, as compared to those who are not destined to have that pathological complete response. So this may become a tool that we use that is informative about what is happening to that tumor in ways that the CT scan uh, or PET, if you're doing that, uh, may not inform. And I think as a surgeon, this is it's useful to know if your patient is, is headed towards an MPR or PCR in terms of how you uh, tackle the surgical resection. So it's very interesting. Um, Keynote 671, which is uh, the uh, pembrolizumab version of the perioperative regimen, reported its results uh, at ASCO. Dr. Wakeley presented these, showing uh, again um, at the first interim analysis a uh, important uh, difference in event-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.58. Also, relatively immature data, um, uh, much like all of the trials as they 
uh, are sending out their first reports, but an early signal of significant efficacy. Also seemingly driven by the uh, pathological response rates, so we're seeing PCR rates of 18.1% versus 4%. Uh, this is, again, using uh, the ISLC methodology. The second term analysis further confirmed the, uh, this was at 36 months uh, um, uh, median survival, uh, further confirms the FS benefit, and importantly, uh, was the first trial to provide us with uh, statistically significant overall survival. This is a large trial with 797 patients, um, so well-powered to show this difference. Still immature, you can see a lot of censored uh, events even before the two-year mark. So uh, data, uh, data that will continue to mature and hopefully continue to, to show these uh, durable benefits if the statistics hold up, I think it will be the case. Um, so this all led to the FDA approval and it's a category one recommendation in NCCN for the use of perioperative pembrolizumab for patients with uh, tumors greater than four centimeters or who have uh, resectable node positive disease. One important uh, thing to highlight is that this is a study that in its design required patients to be cisplatin eligible, um, but in the label uh, allows for uh, a platinum containing regimen. So a patient who may have uh, an inability to get cisplatin could get, go for carbo, and I'll be curious to pick uh, Dr. Ford's brain about what his uh, preference is maybe once we uh, get to the question period. So, and I should mention that both AGN and 17.7T, which I'm going to talk about, allowed for a more diverse uh, chemotherapeutic regimen. Um, and so th these are the 7.7T data. This is the nivolumab version of the perioperative um, uh, trial for uh, uh, same, really essentially the same patient population. Dr. Cascon presented these uh, results at uh, ESMO just a couple months ago. And again, striking results at this first interim analysis. Uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.58, so quite comparable to everything else. Um, mostly driven by the PCR patients, in my opinion, with 25% uh, uh, PCR versus 4.7%. This, again, using the IRPRC uh, methodology. Some surgical outcomes from this trial. Uh, interesting, uh, slightly increased rate of lobectomy in the nivolumab arm, similar to what we had seen in uh, Checkmate 816, and here we're looking at the whole population, so it'll be interesting to see stage breakdowns of these data, because in 816, most of the surgical benefits in terms of facilitating lobectomy uh, seem to be in the stage three po population, which stands to reason. Completeness of resection, a little bit higher than what we saw in 816, so is that fourth cycle the difference, or is it just that surgeons are getting better uh, over time? I'm not sure, but uh, all of the perioperative trials are showing uh, R0 resection rates in the high 80s or mid-90s, 90% uh, range, which is good news. So we have some controversies in this space. There are certain subgroups where we um, weren't sure what the right thing to do was. Should we go to upfront surgery? Should we adopt a new adjuvant approach? Um, and uh, by no means uh, is this data meant to completely resolve these controversies, but um, a group of us put together the available neoadjuvant and perioperative data to try and enrich these uh, underrepresented populations of patients where there may be a lack of power to show a statistically significant difference in each individual trial. So um, we did this using Checkmate 816, uh, 671, AGN, 77T, looking by, at the EFS data by stage 2 and stage 3. And what we saw is that there was a clear statistically significant advantage to the use of neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. And as we'll probably discuss, the caveat here is that there's the Checkmate 816, which was pure neoadjuvant, and then a bunch of other trials that had perioperative. So is the full perioperative regimen necessary to achieve this statistical difference or not? We don't know the answer. But nonetheless, a neoadjuvant strategy for the stage two patients leads to a hazard ratio of 0.71, which was statistically significant. And the magnitude of benefit is even greater in stage three, where you have that hazard ratio of 0.54. These data are uh, in press, not released just yet, but you should be seeing them in, in, in paper form soon. Um, 
just to go back to the 671 uh, data where we see uh, this very consistent hazard ratio across all of the clinical stage indications where the patients are no negative, no positive. So a lot of people debate, oh, I have a you know, four and a half centimeter tumor with no negative, should I give neoadjuvant? Well, the data seem to indicate that barring a lot of other details that you might want to know about that patient, that there may be an advantage uh, for, for all comers in that area. Um, PDL1. So this is a big uh, area of controversy. As you may know, uh, the indication for Checkmate A16 is approved in all PDL1 strata here in uh, North America, but in Europe, PDL1 negative patients, and by the way, stage 2A patients were all excluded from the indication, um, which is kind of why we thought this was important to do. But when you pull all the PDL1 negative patients together, you again have a um, uh, statistically positive effect with a hazard ratio of 0.74, uh, and then as you can see, the magnitude of benefit goes up along with the uh, PDL1 strata, has ratio, my eyes are failing me here, 0.56 for 1 to 49, and 0.4 uh, for greater than 50%. So this really fits with our understanding of the metastatic space. Um, it fits with the potential uh, for sampling errors when we biopsy a small area of the tumor, is it truly representative of the PDL1 TPS of that whole tumor? Uh, so there's a lot of factors by which uh, that these data hold up to our current understanding of immunotherapy use. Interestingly, uh, I like to show this just because uh, we've done poorly in North America in terms of recruiting to these patients. And when we looked at the statistics by region, North America, Europe, and Asia, um, the only geographic region not to have a statistically significant benefit is, is North America. And I really think that this is an, uh, as a result of uh, an underpowered subgroup, despite the pooling of, of the studies. You can see uh, just a little bit over 200 patients recruited across these uh, three trials in North America. So, so we really do need to, to do better in terms of our ability here in the U.S., Canada, uh, Mexico to, to, to actually uh, make an effort to recruit patients to these uh, types of trials. And finally, overall survival. So yes, uh, Keynote 671 did show positivity on its own, but um, uh, and uh, the NeoTorch study in the stage three was positive as well. Uh, or just touching the uh, unity, uh, but when they're pooled, we have a hazard ratio uh, improvement of 0.65, so clear uh, benefit to this strategy. Uh, where we still clearly have an unmet need, although I did show the EFS benefit for, uh, for PD-1 negative, it does not seem to be holding up for the outcome of overall survival. Is this a matter of maturity of data, or is it just that the, this is a truly a, a subgroup of patients who, in general, have less response and perhaps need uh, better treatments? I think, again, we'll pick Dr. Ford's brain about uh, how to uh, improve outcomes for these patients. All right, so we have some really good questions which were submitted, so I think we'll start taking those before we move to cases, if that's okay. Um, does the surgical approach influence choice of immunotherapy strategy or vice versa? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Feels controversial, that question. Yeah. The surgical, well, it's, it's a good question. I think, you know, one of the, one of the very interesting findings of 816 is that there was, there was just no real signal that, that we were harming patients in any clear way with that approach, both from a systemic adverse event rate and also from the adverse events rates from surgery. So um, with that regimen, I feel quite comfortable. I, th I think when we, when we use perioperative regimens, there are clearly going to be patients who will benefit from that who need the escalation, but there are other patients in whom there, there may be significant risks. Yesterday, I presented those results for uh, 671. And there were more uh, mortality events in the pneumonectomy uh, group. And uh, it makes sense that if you expose a patient to more immunotherapy, toxicity may risk augment over time. And if it's a pneumonitis and a pneumonectomy patient, that's, uh, that's a real problem. I don't know what your thoughts are, uh, Patrick. I guess I, I, when I see this, uh, I think the pneumonectomy question is really right in the middle of this question. Um, right. I think those are our hardest patients to manage. I know in Europe they're not as, I always say I'm scared of pneumonectomies, but I, I really, I don't like them. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm uncomfortable with them. Uh, I worry about my patients. And, um, but it's also a group of patients 
who are really hard to give adjuvant therapy to. Yeah. So if anything, I really like uh, the neoadjuvant approach for those patients um, because uh, without the radiation, we haven't seen big step ups in surgical morbidity or mortality. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, getting those three or four cycles in and maybe de-escalating, I think, feels yeah. better without evidence. <laughs> I think for medical oncologists, there's almost a kind of a heart sink when we see someone who, so for example, if we see them up front, there's the potential that they get three, three or four cycles of therapy, surgery, and then they're done. If we see them post-op and they have a bulky tumor, node positive and two positive, then we're stuck with looking at a year of therapy, four cycles of chemo, trying to get the chemo into them, say, say after a pneumonectomy, and potentially in some cases if the margins are positive, uh, radiation, you know? So it's, it's kind of, um, so that's why often we try and, tr uh, try and find these patients up front. I guess one question I would throw back to you both would be the, the CTDNA data were interesting. Um, how would you actually use that if you, uh, say you had a biomarker after two cycles of therapy that could tell you, well, it's very likely this patient has a PCR. Uh, would that influence your surgery at all? Uh, would it influence how aggressive you were during the surgery with mm. pneumonectomies and kind of extended resections? So we have a case that kind of brings that okay. in. We'll, um, we'll wait for that. <laughs> but I don't think I'm ready to cancel cases based on mm -hmm. CTDNA. Yep. I, I don't think that the evidence is there yet. It, would be great if we got there, but I don't know, living through esophageal surgery forever and ever and expecting, you know, a lot of our esophaguses to have no residual disease. I am not looking quite yet to, to take surgery off the table. Yeah, yeah I mean, to, to the point about the surgical decision making, I've not yet really encountered a case that I thought might need a pneumonectomy or that I had no suspicion might need a pneumonectomy and the receipt of neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy led to them needing a pneumonectomy. So yeah. it's, it's usually the opposite. You okay. think they might need a pneumonectomy and now, oh, okay, you can get away with a lobe. And if, if you have information that this patient might have an MPR or a PCR and it's really stuck, I mean, I'm gonna fight extra hard. I'm gonna convert to open. I'm not, I'm not going to uh, take a chance of doing a pneumonectomy for PCR. So in that way, I think it's quite informative. I agree with you. I think for now, we, we need to perform trials that prove that we can predict that event very accurately to perhaps one day de-escalate, but we're not, not quite there yet. Great. All right, uh, another one. What do you look for in the post-neoadjuvant path report to assess response, and how do you interpret these results? Is there guidance? Yeah, well, I think with the um, synoptic re reporting, which is so as recommended, um, I think it can be, so it should be pretty clear, I think, and having a discussion if you're going to implement neoadjuvant or you're in the process of doing it, talking with the uh, pathologists who most commonly report your specimens and making sure they're aware of all these data is very helpful, you know. Um, I think the really important thing is making clear PCR versus no PCR, but our pathologists also try and report uh, major pathologic response less than 10% or, or more than 10%, and even percent residual viable tumor. You saw in one of the slides we presented that uh, those patients who have a lot of residual tumor, they do poorly, and that's kind of a something that could be very relevant for adjuvant therapy. Do we talk about different chemotherapy post-op? Do we talk about a clinical trial, for example? Yeah, I agree. The, the pathology reports have become so rich in information now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what the practice is around, you know, in all, all the different uh, hospitals around the world or North America, but I suspect that it's not the majority that have adopted uh, the, the full extent of what can be uh, obtained from a post-neoadjuvant resection specimen or, or following all of those uh, uh, assessments, but it, it's extremely informative. I can tell you not long ago in our multi-D clinic, we had a patient with stage three disease who was trying to decide between Pacific and, and uh, neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy and surgery. And one of the, I don't want to say selling points, but it, it, one of the factors that I think influenced the, her decision was that uh, this, this point on pathological response, that there was an opportunity uh, within a few weeks, at least for us it's a few weeks from surgery, to be able to tell them, look, you, you, you may have had a complete pathological response, and this is extremely helpful to, prog to provide you a sense of security around the likelihood of recurrence. 
a quick one too. Uh, should, genetic, uh, should genomic testing and PDL1 testing be done upfront or on surgical specimens or on both? <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to do it upfront. And then actually, when John was presenting the data on on uh, on the outcomes by geographic region, it kind of came to me that so most of these studies mandated checkmate H16, for example, mandated EGFR and ALK testing, or um, at least in East Asia. And it's quite possible where in East Asia you have about 50, 60 percent of women, for example, have, have EGFR mutations in their tumor. It's possible by doing that testing you're selecting out the patients who are most likely to benefit from the new adjuvant therapy as well, you know, because you're excluding those patients who have those, those mutations. So I think EGFR is, is mandatory and I think ALK is becoming mandatory because we'll soon hopefully have an approval for an adjuvant ALK. PDL1, as John pointed out, it's, it's controversial at the moment. Um, and I think in, so if anything, it's a bit of a surprise that PDL1 negative may have less benefit because in advanced disease, if you look at the curves for chemo plus immunotherapy for PDL1 uh, negative versus positive, they're relatively similar. The magnitude of benefit is similar. So, uh, uh, so it's just that PDL1 in general uh, do worse if they're negative, uh, but, but there's still benefit there. Yeah, for sure. I think upfront is absolutely essential, and if it's not happening at your site, it's important to work in that direction. And again, just to be able to establish a, a plan that makes sense for that patient. Is retesting on the resection specimen necessary or not? I don't think so at this point. I think that's more of a research question. Okay. All right. I think maybe we'll move to cases, and then we can go through a couple more questions at the end. Okay. So... You wanted to question whether ctDNA could have been helpful in the OR. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a 70-year-old female. Uh, this was her first low-dose CT scan, and she had a 7-centimeter left upper lobe tumor. She was otherwise healthy, she was still working, and completely asymptomatic, so no hoarseness, cough, or anything like that. There were no other areas of uptake on PET besides that giant mass that looks like it's coming out of her PA window. <laughs> Um, EBUS at lymph node stations 4R, 4L, 7, 10, and 11 were all uh, normal. She had a poorly differentiated squamous well with PDL1 30%. She has great FEV1 and DLCO. Uh, so she went on uh, her pretreatment stage. We left as clinical T4 and 0 to 2, 3A, 3B. She got three cycles of carboplatin, paclitaxel, and nivolumab. She tolerated it well. She was working the whole time. Uh, and she had this kind of partial radiographic response. I get sometimes excited when their partial response takes them away from the hilum and not <laughs> into the hilum. But she definitely came into her hilum. Mm -hmm. uh, we took her to the OR for a left VATS, left upper lobectomy, and I guess not completely surprising, the tumor was encasing the apical branch of the pulmonary artery, and it really did appear to be kind of extending onto the continuation beyond that branch. So uh, I hate opening, but definitely before I'm going to say someone's unresectable, step one is you open up, um, at least in my hands, to try and see what else we can do. But, you know, I got opened up, I got another hand, set of hands and eyes in there, and we still thought this is sitting on the PA. Mm -hmm. What are our options? We got proximal and distal control, uh, and we were able to resect a big portion of the PA and then close it primarily. I didn't do frozen sections, and I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Although I have found frozens in the neoadjuvant setting to be very challenging for our pathologists. This is true. They complain. They see little blue cells everywhere, which are usually lymphocytes, and <laughs> they, they um, struggle with, with making a call. I, I like to, to do a frozen in this setting. Um, I've had a couple of patients, unfortunately, have positive vascular margins here uh, with a very similar uh, situation, and it's not, the, getting the frozen doesn't exclude the, that risk, right. you know, I but I, I, it is it is helpful, or especially if you're hemming and hawing about doing a pneumonectomy, it's useful to know if your nodes are all involved. Maybe, you know, this is going to be a bad prognosis. Maybe it's useful to have that lung, or you know, there's some decisions that can come into play there. I actually think that's a really good way to think about it, especially if we think it's nodal disease that's yes. positive. I don't know that the pneumonectomy is going to help them, and again, we know they're going to need additional therapies. Mm, right. 
Okay, so she did have some residual tumor, but like a major pathologic response here with one node uh, positive, so a YPT1A N1. Any benefit, any thoughts, any consideration that somehow a dose of chemotherapy after surgery is helpful too, or no? Has that benefit all been given? Yeah, I think the three cycles is, is, is pretty good, you know? Um, and I think you could theoretically give, give more chemo. It would likely be the same chemo um, because she's got a squamous tumor and she's had carbotaxel. Um, so I think if she came back and was feeling perfectly well, 100%, no, uh, no symptoms, I might talk to her about it, but I would... I would think she's someone who would benefit from a few months of immunotherapy. And we have to think that in the trials, like John's trial and the other studies, about 70% of people who start at the very start, 70% of them will get any adjuvant therapy after getting neoadjuvant in surgery, and about 30% or so will complete, or maybe a little bit more than that, will complete the full year of adjuvant. So I'm going to ask you about that, because that is a long time, and it mm -hmm. seems not random, but maybe random, how a year is chosen. What is the main reason they drop out? Are they tired? Is it toxicity? Yeah, I think, like, uh, so when we see them back in clinic, and you guys see them as well, people are often pretty beat up after the surgery and after the uh, neoadjuvant chemo in particular, perhaps not so much the immunotherapy, but the neoadjuvant chemo. And I think, uh, I would say probably 50% of people, they're waiting for you to tell them you don't need any further therapy or more. Uh, most people would prefer not to have further therapy, I think. And those who really want it, they're kind of um, the really fit patients. And I think dropout is, is a mixture of the oncologist, the surgeon, finding they're just not well enough to receive further therapy, and also the patients sometimes choosing when they see, I've had a PCR, my outcomes are likely good, I'm not going to do another year of therapy, you know. I, I have a question, what's happening in your centers, if, say if this patient had uh, persistent N2 um, around the question of radiation, I know there's pretty diverse practices about uh, recommending port in, in those patients, obviously lung art not being in a neoadjuvant treated patients, and we have this sort of 20, 19, 20% local regional progression in 816. Uh, so so th is, are there any factors that, other than clear positive margin that would influence the use of post-operative radiation? At the moment in our center, it's, it's, it's very minimal, the use of, of port. I, think. Yeah. I can't remember anyone in the last year really who's had port, but I agree that we don't have the data in, in the um, neoadjuvant setting. But the problem, I think, with post-op radiation trials is by the time they're completed, the field has moved on to something else. Right. It's kind of a, <laughs> yeah. it's a challenging one to prove, you know. Yeah. Right, we're very similar. I think I can think of one patient who still had extranodal disease and a lot of it mm -hmm. um, and had no response, you know, right. to her uh, induction. There was a good question on here. Um, it says, what do you do for patients who progress but are still resectable? And I'm going to take that one on and then I'll ask your advice. So, you know, we rescan everyone, we repet everyone. Um, and I am basically doing that, in my opinion, looking for progression outside of the surgical field. We will often see, and maybe this case is one of them, patients whose tumors look a bit bigger and their nodes can look bigger. Um, and that used to scare us, but it doesn't scare me anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't let what happens in the chest really change what I want to do. If I am on this plan, I stay on this plan because we can see nodal flare for sure. Yeah, no, same, same for us. Yep, very similar. Yeah, I think this, this whole group of neoadjuvant trials have taken, you know, uh, radiologic response and thrown it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> to some extent, yeah. Yeah. All right. We have another case. This is a 63-year-old female previous smoker with a right upper lobe mass found on chest x-ray as part of a cardiac workup. Uh, the follow-up diagnostic CT demonstrated a 3.5-centimeter central mass. Uh, the outside brushings and bronch were negative for malignancy. They were originally going to give her some antibiotics. Thank goodness she came to find us. Um, and PET was positive in the right hilar mass, but not in the mediastinal uh, lymph nodes or distant site. Uh, she went for EBUS, and all the lymph nodes were negative. Uh, the mass was biopsied. It was also a squamous cell. PDL1 this time is 60%. And when we looked at this tumor a little closer at our tumor board, we decided it really wasn't 3.5 centimeters. It was 4.4 centimeters. So we have a clinical T2B N02A. The cardiac workup that the scan was gotten for was all unremarkable, and she's got good lung function. She's a pretty healthy lady. She underwent three cycles of chemoimmunotherapy, and you can see pre and post scans. So this was a patient who kind of looked like she progressed. Right. 
you know, and uh, it was a little bit scary. Um, so this is one of those ones. I had plan A, plan B, and plan C. I was operating with the intern that day, I believe. So one of my plans was to find out if one of my attend other attendings was around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it was like uh, very straightforward. Uh, pretty unremarkable, despite what looked like it should have been a terrible resection. Sure. And I find this to be one of the most amazing things is I just don't find uh, the imaging is predictive of what we find in the operating it, room. It really is a, a challenge now to sort of know how to prepare for some of these yeah. situations. And so she went to the OR, again, very unremarkable, nothing really exciting, uh, and no residual viable tumor. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Yeah, I did give her a Kyle leak, oh well. Yeah. Can't let the intern take the station for lymph nodes. It's not <laughs> a good plan. <laughs> but she went home on a low-fat diet and did well. Pass CR. Mm -hmm. What options do we have for a patient like this? Adjuvant immunotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, does she need radiotherapy, surveillance, or I'm not sure. Yeah, well, these are the ones that, you, you, I mean, bulk of the work is done, right? And, uh, uh, I guess I like your line that is it, it's hard to do better than 95% overall it is. survival. Yes. I yeah, I think... Uh, uh, this is a patient where we would lean away from further therapy at this point. Uh, I think I would too, but I don't know that that's what actually happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> I have real equipoise with these cases, you know, because of, uh, because of the adjuvant data being strong for the PDL1 highs. But I often say that a plan for adjuvant therapy is, is kind of like uh, me when I had an inexperienced father with my two year old going to the uh, to the mall with no diapers or snacks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen after the, the, the surgery and, and, and yeah, yeah. The, the likelihood that they'll get all those things that they need to achieve that benefit is a little bit lower, in my opinion, than it would be with a preoperative regimen. Yeah. So that's why we favor new adjuvant for these cases as well. Yeah. All right. Um, we have, oh, I think we're at the end, mm -hmm. but... Um, I want to thank everyone for joining us this morning. Thank you all. My panelists, thank you for joining me at this early hour. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QRX860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merkin Company, Incorporated.